This is episode four of Unfuck the Poor. This first season is a chapter-by-chapter audiobook of Unfuck the Poor. Hey, uh, if you didn't notice, the podcast has the exact same name as the book we've been listening to. Each episode of this season is a different chapter of the book. You can find the full PDF of Unfuck the Poor, along with show notes, additional media, links to references, and social and political commentary, all with a far-left lens at askaleftist.com. As a side note, If you're wondering what specific brand of leftist we're appealing to, just assume we most definitely don't give a shit about brunch and we don't believe in the thin blue line. This episode is Chapter 3, which takes a deep look into the 2008 housing crash and the unsung heroes who warned about the impending chaos of unrestrained lending and who tried to help the vulnerable citizens who would wind up taking the brunt of the fall. Actually, no. Unsung Heroes is wrong. I definitely want to sing the praises of one particular hero. Her name is Gloria Waldron, and you know what? She is really, truly a great person. And after listening to her, I think you will agree. The last witness is is Gloria Waldron from uh, Acorn, and you're welcome, Gloria. Please proceed. Chairman Leach, um, Representative Lafaz, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. I'm testifying on behalf of ACORN's 120,000 plus low and moderate income family, um, family members. Um, I live in East New York, and in my neighborhood, which is um, a, a low and middle income neighborhood, terrible things are done. The thing is that we do not only lose our homes. Ms. Perez came into us at, at Acorn, and um, she was ill for a little while, and she couldn't work. Just her husband was working, so she asked the lender to reduce the, 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 the payment so that until she is better and, and can afford it. But they only see the gain. They don't see the, gain, the, the pain. And what happened, she got a heart attack. She had to have a bypass surgery. Eventually, she said she didn't want to lose a house because, you see, it's different with the minority. When you're working for $5,000 and you say, I'm putting 10% aside for my building, you have $4,500 to go with. When you're working for $200 minimum wage or a little above, and you put aside the same 10%, you just have $180 to go, to go on. The, the cost of utilities does not lower for the, 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 the low-income person. It's, it's the same across the board. And these people have to take a longer time to accumulate the amount of money to pay down in their homes. So it's, it's not just their homes they're losing. The woman had two bypass surgeries as a result of losing her home. When she came to us, she, she said, after the first one, she, she um, got a bus, a mini bus. She said, well, I'll take children to school to, so that I can um, keep paying the mortgage. As a result of that, she had another bypass surgery. So we're losing not the homes only, but health, and and a lot more with it. Now, we're seeing that um, predatory lending is doing a lot of damage, and it has to be stopped. A home loan is the most complex transaction most families will ever make, and a home is the largest purchase. For many families, it represents their entire life savings. We don't ask people to make decisions about buying medications based on reading 50 pages of disclosures. We make rules about what standard drugs need to meet in order to be sold. Home loans are something like that. Borrowers are never going to know as much as lenders. And experience shows that too many subprime lenders are taking outrageous advantage of this fact. 
Chapter 3, Dear Gloria Waldron, I couldn't find your email address, so I'll just use this title heading space to say you are a good person. You did right, so thank you, Gloria Waldron. If you're being critical, you might be thinking, okay, I get the Air Force One's flip-flop thing, but something doesn't make sense. At the very end of the analogy, a few important things are missing and or muddied. One, the homeowner. Doesn't the homeowner get the box of Air Force Ones that are worthless? Is the shoebox the mortgage or the house? The homeowner is not part of the equation. The homeowner is just a signature on a piece of paper as far as the bank is concerned. Two, the house. A house is worth something. So is the house the pair of flip-flops? Yes, the house is the pair of flip-flops inside the shoebox. It is slightly more important than the homeowner because it is the thing that should hold value. Three, the mortgage. That is the thing being bundled, bought, sold, traded, leveraged. It is the mortgage separate from the house. The mortgage is the dollar value on paper. As a security or a thing worth money, the mortgage debt holds value in the form of regular monthly payments. It's just paper. It points to a thing worth dollars. The dollar value of the mortgage and the way it is bundled in a tranche gives it the appearance of getting a pair of Air Force Ones, that would be the shoebox, when in reality you're just getting shitty flip-flops. Now one mortgage is basically useless, that's why they bundle them into CDOs and sell them off in tranches worth millions. If you have a large portfolio, you could be holding hundreds of millions or billions of dollars worth of mortgages. For what it's worth, the homeowner is the first to realize that the Air Force Ones are really shitty Walgreens flip-flops. Usually when mortgage payments increase, home prices begin to drop and they look to sell their homes. So let's actually talk about what happens to the homeowners. Going underwater on a mortgage means you owe more on the house than it's worth. You cannot sell the flip-flops and pay off the cost of Air Force Ones. If you sell the house, you still have the mortgage. You can go underwater on anything, a house, a car, a submarine. Some people will end up paying huge sums into a house that isn't worth it because it's better than being homeless. Some people opt for default and foreclosure, and some people are forced into default and foreclosure through layoffs. Some people will file for bankruptcy because wiping out your credit for eight years is better than not being able to afford food, rent, and clothes in the short term. Again, the homeowner is not part of the equation as far as the bank is concerned. The homeowner is just a signature. A booming economy is like a mystical elven shire, mystical mystical elven shire elven beautiful shire. flowers and overflowing fruit trees and minotaurs, minotaurs, minotaurs grazing minotaurs. on lush clover while woodland creatures tumble in piles of nuts and berries. Even when the seasons change, the snow is crisp and sparkling with diamond dust, and even though it's cold, all the magical creatures look forward to the invigorating spring sure to come. But a busted economy and subsequent recession is like the fucking Donner expedition stumbling into the Shire and ravaging all the surplus foods and starving minotaurs and wearing unicorn hides, eating the raw flesh of the innocent woodland creatures, only to cannibalize each other when the snow melts and the clover doesn't return, the sky is forever gray, the magic is gone, there's no fucking spring. Economic crashes always open up new markets for those of us peasants willing to cannibalize each other, and we're willing to do it because we need money. Payday lending companies, which are illegal in 13 states and the District of Columbia, see spikes in business following recessions, and indeed, they increased significantly from 2007 to 2013. In 2007, the number of payday loan borrowers totaled 13.8 million. That rose to 22.7 million by 2010 and up to 25.4 million by 2013. Their lending practices are criminal. They provide small loans based on your future paycheck between $100 and $500 on average, with fees between $15 and $10 per $100 borrowed. 
When you get paid, you're expected to pay back the loan, obviously, but it isn't what you borrowed. It has exorbitant interest within the range of 390% to 700% annual percentage rate, or APR, making a one-time repayment nearly impossible for most borrowers. One interesting market that emerged following the 2008 crash was the need for real estate-owned, or REO, contracting. REO contracting existed before the crash, but it became a booming market in its own right following the crash. After all, there were suddenly 10 million foreclosed and vacant homes without owners to maintain them. Even if you own a pair of flip-flops that no one can wear, you should probably make sure they stay wearable because someday you'll sell those flip-flops as is. Now, the interesting thing about REO contracting is that while you get these contracts through lender portals like Fannie Mae, there is little relevant information on what they actually do. Here is a real description from the Fannie Mae website, quote, Our mission is to ensure the quality of our real estate-owned property maintenance services. We consistently maintain and offer best-in-class, market-ready properties. Fannie Mae's property maintenance practices are part of its overall neighborhood stabilization efforts, which include prioritizing sales to owner-occupants and selling properties in a timely manner to promote stability and minimize the impact to the local community. Fannie Mae's activities are at the core of the housing industry, and we strive to be America's most valued housing partner. As one of our REO vendors, your partnership with Fannie Mae ensures that our comprehensive programs align with our expectations to make homeownership a reality while consistently delivering quality products, services, and expertise, end quote. Now, what the fuck any of that means from a practical standpoint, I have no idea. But if you Google REO contractors and REO asset managers, you'll find manicured websites that suggest the industry exists to beautify bank-owned homes, to preserve them and improve them and maintain their homeness, to bring creativity and intellect and efficiency to the housing market. It's quite the cottage industry. And if you look long enough, you can glean more information on how they operate. This is from REONetwork.com. Quote, REO Network is an online directory of screened and highly qualified real estate professionals who specialize in the remarketing of REO, real estate-owned properties. REO homes are properties that have been acquired by a bank or lender as the result of a foreclosure, end quote. The Garland, Texas-based REO Contractors offers a bit more explanation of their services, quote, Our clients include the major REO banking industry entities, investors, brokers, and individuals alike. We cover multiple states, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Colorado, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Arkansas, New Mexico, and Kansas. Nothing is too big or small. We are qualified to do it all, including foundation repairs, roof replacements, and even mold remediation. So let us solve your rehab problems for you. End quote. What kinds of problems do REO contractors solve? This is from PreservationTalk.com, an online forum for REO contractors. Quote, so I get to this property and there's a bunch of junk outside in the barn. Then I notice on the side of the house there's a whole house generator. So I walk over and take a look. It's all black on one side of it, like it caught fire at some point. I open the case up and there's no power going to it whatsoever. Won't start. Nothing. What should I bid for the price to remove it since it's considered exterior debris now that it's junk? End quote. REO asset managers hire contractors who are responsible for filing liens, documenting the current state of a house, clearing it of squatters with law enforcement aid if necessary, pouring antifreeze in the toilets and sinks, draining water heaters, cutting off power, locking gas lines and water lines, boarding up windows and doors with plywood, changing locks and adding padlocks and throwing away garbage or liquidating valuable goods left behind. I don't have a reference to cite for this, but when I first started out in the construction industry, I was intrigued. 
by becoming an REO contractor, and if I'd known I'd be writing a book about it a decade later, I probably would have saved a bunch of screenshots. But the world is different now, and you just have to take my word for it that this is what REO contractors do. In fact, I was a home inspector briefly and got a glimpse into the kinds of fucked up things that happen in foreclosed homes. So please read more to find out. If you're a homeowner who feels like they've been fucked into an oppressive mortgage, or if you were sold on DIY and did a bunch of upgrades on your home that was then foreclosed on, you might feel justified in removing lighting and plumbing fixtures, cabinets, and appliances. You might feel justified in taking out your anger on the banks who fucked you with their, quote, innovative mortgages by smashing holes in walls, smashing cabinets, not to distress, but to destroy them, and if you're especially spiteful, smearing shit on the walls and pissing on the carpets. If you're houseless, you might see a vacant home as a great place to hang for a while, bring in some blankets and mattresses and camp out for a few months. If you like spray paint, you might tag all the walls. If you're 13 years old, you might smash some windows. REO contractors don't necessarily repair all this damage. What they do is minimize damage. They patch holes, tear out piss-soaked carpets, and seal up the place so that when the market opens back up, asset managers have something that can be sold. REO contractors make minor repairs as they come up. They plug holes in roofing, cut the grass, clean gutters, paint over graffiti. They also, and this will make sense later, do as few repairs as possible in low-income communities, leaving blocks of homes with tarps on roofs and plywood on the windows, or they just leave broken windows uncovered. Remember, the homeowner is just a signature. It doesn't matter how many kids' birthdays you celebrated in your home, how many height lines you measured on the pantry door, how many bottle rockets you set off in the backyard, or how handy you felt when you finally unclogged the goddamn disposal because, damn it, who keeps shoving potato skins in here? You have legal options to stay in your home as long as possible, but eventually those options run out and you become a trespasser by law. You don't own the property anymore, the bank owns it, and they send in local law enforcement with a court order to clear the property, and the REO contractor wins a bid to document and winterize and do repairs and cut the grass. The recession economy that emerges is one that exploits economic damage. Contractors who made money renovating homes are replaced by maintenance bidding. Employers are justified in reducing pay to maintain employment, but really, jobs are so scarce that workers are willing to work for literally anything. This isn't an exaggeration. Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1987 to 2006, testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Quote, To be sure, an acceleration in nominal labor compensation, especially its wage component, became evident over the past year, but the rate of pay increase still was markedly less than historical relationships with labor market conditions would have predicted. Atypical restraint on compensation increases has been evident for a few years now and appears to be mainly the consequence of greater worker insecurity. In 1991, at the bottom of the recession, a survey of workers at large firms by International Survey Research Corporation indicated that 25% feared being laid off. In 1996, despite the sharply lower unemployment rate and the tighter labor market, the same survey organization found that 46% were fearful of a job layoff. Thus, the willingness of workers in recent years to trade off smaller increases in wages for greater job security seems to be reasonably well documented." End quote. The gig economy that emerged after the 2008 crash, which was branded as a way to liberate workers from the 9 to 5, is really just a clever way to eliminate benefits by turning employees into independent contractors. It minimizes pay and job security. Work is not guaranteed, but hey, 
You're your own boss, so earnings are limitless. Of course, to become part of the gig economy, you have to offer something of value, typically in the form of technical training or education. Since 2008, with many out-of-work Americans enrolling in college seeking to make themselves more hireable, college tuition has risen drastically. The cost of college increased by more than 25% in the last 10 years, and here's why. A recession caused by a massive housing crisis led to massive job losses, causing more people to go back to college or stay in college where they took out trillions in loans as tuitions rose, converting the mortgage crisis to the student loan crisis. Now, unlike the housing crisis, student loans cannot be discharged by bankruptcy. You have two options to get out of student debt pay it off over the course of your life, or die, and some people choose death. Ironically, some of the adults who didn't understand the consequences of, quote, innovative mortgages and were able to eventually get out from under the mortgages through bankruptcy and start over, which is very stressful and scary, are the same ones telling younger generations burdened by massive student loans that they made a bad choice and are stuck with it. And another thing, many graduates took jobs at nonprofits because they signed up for a U.S.-backed public service loan forgiveness program. The loan forgiveness program has a 99.5% rejection rate, according to Forbes, because, hey, fuck us, right? Anyway, we have CDOs cut into tranches and being traded on the derivatives market, and the whole time, they're oozing pig shit juice and no one seems to smell it. The fallout from the trillion-dollar mortgage losses will have consequences that ultimately shape the 2010s and beyond. A handful of people smelled shit and spoke up. A few smart investors saw what was happening with the subprime lending crisis before it exploded, before it was revealed that people were paying Air Force One prices for flip-flops and trillions basically vanished. A house of cards, if you will. Those smart investors took short positions on banks and financial institutions based on the impending doom of the flip-flop shithouse mortgages. Steve Eisman's hedge fund at Front Point Partners grew from $700 million to $1.5 billion, from shorting banks ahead of the subprime implosion. John Paulson brought in $20 billion to his hedge fund firm, Paulson & Co., on credit default swaps, which is a complex type of derivative that paid Paulson & Co. for mortgage defaults. We won't go into it yet. David Einhorn shorted Lehman Brothers stock. Lehman went bankrupt and Einhorn went... James Simon pulled in $2.5 billion in personal wealth. Meredith Whitney, Roy Niederhofer, and Nuriel Rubini all play short bets and won, though it's hard to figure out how much. Another profiteer is Henry Hank Paulson, though not from short selling. Paulson, who became the U.S. Treasury Secretary in 2006, had to sell $500 million of Goldman Sachs shares before taking the government position. When he sold in 2006, shares were going for $152.50, but by 2008, they had dropped to $47. The best part? Paulson didn't have to pay capital gains taxes on his earnings because, perk of working in government, he filed a certificate of divestiture. Capital gains are gains or earnings made on capital, money. If you invest $1,000 and it becomes $10,000, you have $9,000 in capital gains. If you're rich and want to serve your country in an official position, you don't have to pay taxes. Don't worry about it. Andrew Lady, a hedge fund manager, made an unspecified shit ton of money on his banking short and called it quits in pretty spectacular fashion, publishing an open farewell letter. Quote, I was in this game for the money. The low-hanging fruit, i.e. the idiots whose parents paid for prep school, Yale, and then the Harvard MBA, was there for the taking. 
These people who were often truly not worthy of the education they received or supposedly received rose to the top of such companies as AIG, Bear Stearns, and Lehman Brothers, and all levels of our government. All of this behavior, supporting the aristocracy, only ended up making it easier for me to find people stupid enough to take the other side of my trades. God bless America. On the issue of the U.S. government, I would like to make a modest proposal. First, I point out the obvious flaws whereby legislation was repeatedly brought forth to Congress over the past eight years, which would have reigned in the predatory lending practices of now mostly defunct institutions. These institutions regularly filled the coffers of both parties in return for voting down all of this legislation designed to protect the common citizen. This is an outrage, yet no one seems to know or care about it. End quote. And that's pretty much it. Those are the big winners from the 2008 financial crisis. Billions of dollars raked in and one guy, Lady, basically yeeted himself out in a rocket made of gold while the others, like Lady predicted, went on to try to multiply their fortunes. But their heads got so big from their clairvoyance, they essentially became as blind to the market as their peers, and they aren't doing great these days. When the economy starts to tank, we, the average public, think things like, man, this sounds like a real catastrophe, and I, and I don't understand any of it, so thank God we have professionals who can handle it. The thing is, the professionals couldn't handle it. They fucked up royally, and their expertise only served to explain how everything collapsed. They left out any criticisms of convoluted investment strategies and how no one was actually paying attention to the shit juice oozing out of all the mortgage bundles. How many people work in banking and finance? Thousands? Tens of thousands? I don't really know, but a handful of people out of all of them caught a whiff of something in their instinct, their financial instinct, was to cash in on failure. For those tasked with containing the fallout, blame was placed on nearly everything except the recklessness of the banks. For those working in government who had come from the banking sector, their banker's instinct was to reward that recklessness with bailouts because outright failure was, well, what was outright failure but an admission that our banking system was fragile by default? The phenomenal thing about Lady's letter is he explicitly states that the people running the show were unqualified for their positions. They were, in his words, idiots. Idiots he exploited for a huge payout. They lost, he won. But wait, I smell a participation trophy. Everyone at the top is a winner. The banks, all of them, were about to collapse, and that wouldn't be good because we need the banks. They're so big and powerful, and they control everything, and they know all these words and money tricks. Gotta keep them around. So obviously, we should help them out. We should. You and I, the peasants. The 10 million bankrupt and defaulted and houseless people and the 320 million other peasants. We should be cool with the banks asking for trillions because they are too big to fail. Shit, if they failed, that might completely fuck the economy into a huge recession that takes years to climb out of that you might actually need to define as a depression to make sense of it. Fuck the poor. Give the incompetent brokers government money. Call it a subsidy. Call it a loan. Call it a handout. The fantasy was that the banks could get their shit together if we saved them. Hey, you want to do something fun and exciting? How much money do you think the U.S. government handed out to banks to prevent total economic collapse? Go ahead, write some numbers down. Hell, I'll even help you. Um, so the U.S. population at the time was 330 million. So if the U.S. government handed out $1,000, for example, per person, that would be a total bank bailout of 330 billion. Does that sound right? Maybe it was $10,000 per U.S. citizen for a total bailout of 3.3 trillion. 
just go ahead, play with some numbers, get a, get a piece of paper, a calculator, you know, add some zeros, then add some more zeros and some more. And ultimately, I'm just fucking with you because you'll never guess the number. The total bailout package, when it was all said and done, the total value was $29 trillion. That is an average of $87,878.78 per U.S. citizen, all handed out to the banks and financial institutions that caused the 2008 uh, economic collapse. Now, just for reference, the 2019 median household income in the United States was $65,712. So that disparity is um, pretty well fucked. At this point, though I have meandered considerably, we have set the stage for a few things. The festering pile of pig shit mortgages is about to erupt as a full-on crapulent geyser. The recession market about to unfold will push millions of Americans into debt, wipe out $2.7 trillion in retirement savings, eliminate jobs, result in large-scale foreclosures with its own niche contractor market, increase binge drinking, especially among black young men, and generate vast wealth for literally a handful of hedge fund managers and investors who cared to pay attention. To top it off, American homeowners are about to receive a significant share of blame for losing their homes because of their subprime mortgages. Specifically, black Americans are about to be blamed. Now, all of this is enough to cause anger and resentment among average Americans, enough resentment to justify some sort of market retaliation to punish the financial institutions when the opportunity arises, i.e. GameStop. Enough resentment for most of us peasants to really, truly, 100% not give a single fuck about hedge funders losing billions. How exactly did black Americans come to take the blame for the housing crash? Well, you remember when Michael Bloomberg ran for president in 2020 and people were like, that guy's a racist, something something redlining, something something asshole. Well, they were right. Michael Bloomberg is an asshole. In a train of thought that completely ignores America's entire history of racism and government-sanctioned segregation, Michael Bloomberg cited the end of redlining and the subsequent issuance of subprime mortgages to people who couldn't afford them as the primary driver of the 2008 financial crash. In fact, he didn't just say it off the cuff, he's made the point a few times. On WABC's The John Gambling Show in 2007, at Georgetown University in 2008, and during the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. From The Gambling Show in 2007, quote, What happened here is a bunch of people who didn't really have the wherewithal to get mortgages got mortgages, Bloomberg told Gambling. Now, if they didn't have access to those mortgages, the elected officials would scream, You're discriminating against them. Some of them lied about their income, some by a lot. Now they say, oh, well, the salesman convinced them to do it. But we live in a world where when you put your signature down, you're supposed to know what you're signing and you have to take responsibility because every time there's a victim, we've got to find someone that's responsible for it. End quote. And from 2011, quote, it was not the banks that created the mortgage crisis. It was, plain and simple, Congress, who forced everybody to go and give mortgages to people who were on the cusp. Now, I'm not saying I'm sure that was terrible policy because a lot of those people who got homes still have them and they wouldn't have gotten them without that. But they were the ones who pushed Fannie and Freddie to make a bunch of loans that were imprudent, if you will. They were the ones that pushed the banks to loan to everybody. And now we want to go vilify the banks because it's one target. It's easy to blame them and Congress certainly isn't going to blame themselves. At the same time, Congress is trying to pressure banks to loosen their lending standards to make more loans. This is exactly the same speech they've criticized them for. End quote. 
Now, those are all pretty good quotes, and I'm kind of proud of myself for finding them, but if only there was some way to hear in Michael Bloomberg's own words how big of an asshole he is. Um, redlining, if you remember, was the term where banks took whole neighborhoods and said, uh, people in these neighborhoods are poor, they're not going to be able to pay off their mortgages, tell them your salesmen don't go into those areas, and then Congress got involved, as local elected officials as well, and said, oh, that's not fair, these people should be able to get get credit. And once you started pushing in that direction, banks started making more and more loans where the credit of the person buying the house wasn't as good as you would like. Yeah, I, I think that'll do for proof that Bloomberg is an asshole. That quote comes directly from his conversation at Georgetown University in 2008. Now, another interesting takeaway from that Georgetown University conversation, considering Bloomberg's short-lived presidential run in the middle of a global pandemic, is Bloomberg's comparison of health insurance companies to mortgage banks. Bloomberg said, well, I'll let him tell you. What insurance companies never uh, assume never will happen is plague where everybody dies. And what mortgage bankers assume will never happen is a downturn where everybody wants to sell their house. And in fact, housing's a little bit worse because one default, one vacant house on a street can bring down the property values from the whole neighborhood, whereas one person dying probably doesn't have any effect on People, other people who have uh, life insurance policies. Anyways. Now, never mind that plagues are dangerous because they spread exponentially, if not controlled, because they literally affect everyone, not just people who can't pay a hospital bill or an insurance premium. And this was the fuckwit who was going to solve the pandemic. By 2020, the year of enlightenment and good times, New York Times opinion columnist Christopher Caldwell proclaimed in his not-so-subtle February 15, 2020 article, Bloomberg is right about the 2008 financial crash, that Bloomberg was, after all, right about the 2008 financial crash. Solid opinionating. Bloomberg's assertion, as clarified by Caldwell, quote, Mr. Clinton, that is President Clinton, enlisted and empowered community organizers using the Community Reinvestment Act, a nearly forgotten piece of legislation from 1977 that gave community groups a way to stymie banks by accusing them of discrimination. He brokered deals. In the quarter century after 1992, $850 billion in loans was steered through these community groups. The banks took the precaution of showering gifts and grants on the community groups directly too. After 1993, the Association of Community Organizers for Reform Now, ACORN, which would later attract controversy for its role in helping elect Barack Obama president, received $13.5 million from Bank of America, $9.5 million from J.P. Morgan Chase, and $8.1 million from Citibank, end quote. This is all a bit much. We've got the Community Reinvestment Act, which allowed community groups to accuse banks of discrimination, ACORN, Obama, and the big banks. I wonder, did Caldwell use the Google Docs condense bullshit plugin? Anyway, the premise of Caldwell's account, and Bloomberg's, is that the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA, made it impossible for banks to meet the government's demands for more low-income and minority lending unless they handed out loans to unqualified borrowers. In other words, the government, through the CRA and claims of discrimination, forced banks to crank out subprime loans. This is a common, very smart response. Unfortunately, it doesn't hold up. What exactly is a bank? Wells Fargo is a bank, right? They have banks. Citigroup is a bank, right? They are actually 
multinational financial services companies. A bank is licensed to accept deposits and make loans. Sure, Wells Fargo and Citigroup have buildings that can do that, but they are enormous corporations that have displaced community banks and thrifts, traditional savings and loan banks, or community banks. Thrifts specialize in savings and mortgages and offer higher savings interest rates, and their biggest distinction is that they are designed to serve consumers and not businesses. Community and thrift banks also, and this is important, are required under the CRA to help meet the credit needs of the communities where they're located, including low and moderate income neighborhoods. And since 1979, bank consolidations and mergers decreased the number of banks and thrifts subject to the rules of the CRA by 51%. That's a loss of 10,470 such banks, dropping another 3,120 banks between 1995 and 2008. Only 25% of subprime loans originated from banks under CRA charter because they had essentially been wiped out by huge international financial institutions. Unexplained and unexplored is why black Americans were disproportionately affected by the housing crisis and why even middle-class or upper-middle-class black Americans were steered towards subprime loans when they qualified for prime. So, if the assertion of both Bloomberg and Caldwell is that we are to place 100% of the blame on the U.S. government for the Community Reinvestment Act that oversaw only 25% of the institutions handing out subprime loans, then they can go fuck themselves with the trench. I mean, they're just full of bullshit. And now, finally, we can talk about race, because Bloomberg and Caldwell brought it up. Bloomberg brought it up with redlining, and Caldwell brought it up with his claim of stymieing banks with discrimination claims and ACORN. Redlining is... No, you know what? Let's go back to mortgages. Balloon mortgages were all the rage in the 20th century. To buy a home, you would make a down payment, typically 50% of the value of a home, then make interest-only payments on the loan for five to seven years, at which point the bank brought you a balloon, popped it in your face, and said, pay up, sucker, because the remaining balance was due then and there. The balloon is the big fat sum you owe at the end of the low payment period, though you already coughed up 50% at the beginning, so maybe it's two balloons. You know, in all my research, no one clarifies this. Anyway, this was not a sustainable path to home ownership if you were an urban working or even middle class family. The Great Depression from 1929 to 1939 exacerbated an existing housing crisis. There was a housing shortage. Builders were broke and not building. Home loans were the pop-in-your-face balloon style, and a lot of people who could get them initially were about to default on those balloons. The Roosevelt, Franklin, not Teddy, administration's 1933 Homeowners Loan Corporation, or Hulk, attempted to help by purchasing homes that were about to be foreclosed on and then reissuing extended-term mortgages up from five to seven years to 15 and even 25 years. These were more manageable loans, and they're basically the framework for the modern mortgage, but they were still loans, meaning you could still default. The government program Hulk then set out to secure the investments of the U.S. government by carefully surveying neighborhoods and designating low- and high-risk areas. The risk being surveyed was home values. Would they hold their value or not? Hulk hired local real estate agents to go through neighborhoods, do some snooping, and then doodle on maps with crayons. They chose green for the best low-risk areas, or first grade, blue for still desirable, or second grade, yellow for definitely declining, or third grade, and red for hazardous high-risk areas, or fourth grade. Those yellow and red doodles still affect black Americans nearly a century later. 
A comprehensive analysis of nearly 150 of Hulk's residential security maps overlaid on present-day maps of U.S. cities found that 74% of Hulk's high-risk areas are low to moderate income neighborhoods today, and 64% of them are minority neighborhoods today. A couple things. One, the National Association of Real Estate Board's Code of Ethics of 1928. This is a real thing that featured this gem of an ethic, Article 34. A realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individuals whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in that neighborhood. Two, redlining. This is how the real estate agent of 1933 fulfilled his duty to uphold his code of ethics by outlining black neighborhoods or mixed-race neighborhoods on residential security maps regardless of income level, signaling to Hulk that they would be a bad investment of federal loans for homes and home repairs. This is a thing that Bloomberg recalls incorrectly in his Georgetown talk, and it is something that William Caldwell actually has something else to add. Quote, Mr. Bloomberg is saying something similar. He did not defend redlining, but that does not mean the idealistic fight against redlining is blameless in the financial shocks of 2008 and thereafter. It is what created the moral pressure or provided politicians with the moral cover to follow destructive loose credit policies, end quote. If banks had been stymied, by claims of racial discrimination, it would be justified if there was an actual historic factual basis for government-sanctioned discrimination against black Americans for the approval of home. Oh, wait, I just went over all the facts, and there actually is such a basis. So Bloomberg and Caldwell are full of shit. They may also be actual literal pieces of shit. But wait, there is more. Caldwell also mentioned ACORN, a non-governmental organization that can describe itself best. Now, ACORN is no longer in service, but it does still have a website, and this is taken directly from their current website. Quote, ACORN was the nation's largest community organization of low and moderate income families working together for social justice and stronger communities. From 1970 to its end in 2010, ACORN had grown to more than 175,000 member families organized in 850 neighborhood chapters in 75 cities across the U.S. and in cities in Canada, the Dominican Republic, and Peru. Why ACORN died in 2010 is complicated yet uncomplicated. The complicated part is that internal conflicts such as mismanagement, a nearly $1 million embezzlement cover-up, and mission drift created a situation that, should the organization encounter an external conflict, would cause it to collapse in on itself. Now, mission drift is an economics term. It happens when an organization grows or expands too quickly to focus on its core mission, or when an organization begins operating or drifting outside the goals of its mission statement, both of which actually happened with ACORN. ACORN's external conflict is actually the uncomplicated part. A man and a woman, dressed as a pimp and prostitute, solicited advice from ACORN workers on how to lie on bank loans, and they recorded it hidden camera style, edited in theatrics such as the pimp dressed in fur coat, top hat, sunglasses, and carrying a cane, um, Side note, dude was white, and then released the videos to media outlets. Fox News liked the videos. Andrew Breitbart's BigGovernment.com loved the videos. The pimp did not actually enter acorn branches dressed in the disguise as described. He actually wore khakis and a button-down shirt with a tie sometimes. But he included the scenes of himself in costume to drive interest in the videos because, as we know in 2021, 
views our news. The man and woman filmed at Acorn Branch locations in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, San Bernardino, San Diego, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles, and they also claimed to be trafficking underage girls. Now, why would conservative activists target an organization whose core mission was to promote social justice and strong communities? The answer might not be obvious, and it might not make any fucking sense, but the answer is voter fraud. Now, I'll admit, the pimp and prostitute thing sounds bad, and it would certainly look bad for a community-oriented nonprofit to be assisting in prostitution, tax fraud, and human trafficking. And if you edited the videos heavily enough, you could guarantee that they would look as bad as you wanted them to look. Conservative media latched onto the videos first, and because they were so convincing, it caused New York Times public editor Clark Hoyt to lament that Fox viewers were more up to speed than Times readers and then immediately dig into the ACORN controversy. The ACORN videos came on the heels of the 2007-2008 assault on ACORN for allegations of voter fraud, covered heavily by conservative media and then followed by the mainstream media, and I mean heavily. A report by Huffington Post contributors John Atlas and Peter Dreyer explains, quote, We expect this from the right-wing echo chamber, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, and their ilk. More troubling is the mainstream news media's unwitting complicity in the conservative campaign to frame ACORN. For example, 80.3% of the print and broadcast stories about ACORN's alleged voter fraud failed to mention that ACORN itself was reporting voter registration irregularities to authorities as required by law. After the unedited ACORN videos were reviewed, Andrew Breitbart said he had been bamboozled and the New York Times retracted or corrected their reporting. Caldwell could have at least dug a little bit into the Times reporting on ACORN and maybe not just tossed it in there to smear Obama. And ACORN, because of its complicated internal conflicts, went under thanks to a prank that cost $1,300 to execute. Not because they helped a pimp and prostitute cheat on their taxes, but because a year earlier they had been targeted for voter fraud, for which ACORN was also, well, I'll just let ACORN defend itself. Quote, a report released by the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service on the community group ACORN finds no misuse of its federal funds over the past five years and no attempts at improper voting following its 2008 voter registration drive. The report raises questions about the constitutionality of a government-wide funding ban and states that two filmmakers likely broke the law when they conducted a widely publicized sting against the group. No instances were identified in which ACORN violated the terms of federal funding in the last five years, a press release posted on the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary website states. It also notes, there were no instances of individuals who were allegedly registered to vote improperly by ACORN or its employees and who were reported attempting to vote at the polls. Not a goddamn thing about pimps and prostitutes, but everything about voter fraud. Basically a precursor to every fucking bullshit story surrounding the 2020 election 13 years later. One of the core functions of ACORN was to actively engage in their local communities. Actively engage in the community has virtually no meaning because we hear it so often, but it is a real thing that involves real action organizing voter registration, helping to elect local leadership to do real policy work, 
participating in neighborhood meetings, advocating for students, workers, neighborhood safety, the elderly, the sick, people who can't afford rent or utilities. All of these things require people within a community to interact with their neighbors and work for and with each other. It requires actual door knocking, where you walk up a sidewalk, wave to someone, knock on the door and awkwardly wait, and then introduce yourself and ask them if they would like to support meal programs for children and the elderly. An organization that facilitates these activities effectively, meaning they actually increase voter turnout and help communities gain some sort of autonomy, is worthy of outrage only if you don't like where that power is coming from, somewhere like redline districts. Another person who smelled pig shit a full eight years before all those tranches oozed onto Wall Street was Gloria Waldron, an ACORN member from Brooklyn, who's now my hero. Sitting at a hearing on predatory lending practices held by the Committee on Banking and Financial Services in the year 2000, Waldron listened to some very smart people pushing subprime lending on low- and middle-income neighborhoods. Her testimony is a sound clip that we used at the beginning of this chapter. During this hearing, the Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA, was indeed mentioned in regard to subprime lending. Now, both the 28th Comptroller of Currency, John Hawk Jr., and Representative Bruce Vinto from Minnesota praised the usage of the CRA to provide half a billion dollars in subprime loans to low- and middle-income borrowers, noting that the goal of the CRA, getting loans to lower-income citizens, was being met by subprime lending. And this is an editorial note from here on out, low and moderate income or low and middle income will be abbreviated as LMI. As for the 2000 subprime hearing, Comptroller John Hawk Jr. kickstarts things by stating the intent of the Office of the Comptroller of Currency. Now, the OCC is the federal regulator of national banks. And you know what? I want you to hear this from his mouth. Our next witness is the Comptroller of the Currency, Jerry Hawk. Please proceed, Jerry. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member LaFalse and members of the committee, I appreciate this opportunity to appear before you today to testify on issues regarding predatory lending practices in the consumer credit industry. The OCC is fully prepared to use its authority to combat abusive, unfair, and deceptive lending practices if they're engaged in by national banks. Man, I hope those words don't come back to haunt him. Anyway, he goes on. On a related issue, a significant concern has been raised about the appropriate consideration under the Community Reinvestment Act of loans, both originations and purchases, that can be characterized as abusive or predatory. Certainly it is fair to ask how an institution can be helping if it engages in lending that's designed to strip equity from low or moderate income homeowners. Now later in this hearing, when it was pointed out that denying CRA credit to predatory lenders was an option, Federal Reserve Governor Ed Gramlich, an actual smart person, was quick to separate fact from fiction. But one thing that you should understand, Congressman, is that uh, the, these are somewhat different problems because in general, uh, I mean, the CRA obligation is attached to uh, deposit insurance, which means that it's, uh, th that it's uh, done by banks and, and thrift institutions. And a lot of the uh, predatory lending is alleged to take place outside of that. I mean, to to be loan companies and mortgage companies. And I know so we got we've got to go. I, I mean, I'm certainly they aware don't of that, have a CRA obligation. No. Now, after sitting patiently and listening to all these very smart people, it came time for Gloria Waldron to deliver her statement. A portion of which we listened to at the beginning of this chapter. Fortunately for us, Gloria had a lot more to say. Unfortunately, the statistics back up what is so obvious to us. These lenders target our neighborhoods, and they are fast becoming the main lenders there. 
The subprime industry claims their loans open up home ownership to new families, but the vast majority of their business is refinancing and home improvement loans. Too frequently, in fact, subprime lenders tear down dreams of home ownership. As the subprime industry has taken off, so, as the subprime industry has taken off, so have foreclosures, <coughs> despite the growing economy. In Philadelphia from 1995 to 1999, for example, as subprime lending grew, foreclosures more than doubled. Pricing on these loans seemed driven not by the credit risk of the borrowers, but how much the lender or broker can get away with. When entering into a mortgage, every borrower places a certain amount of faith in their lender broker. We need more consumer protections on high-cost loans because while borrowers from middle and upper income areas can generally trust their bank not to rip them off, the, with junk fees, credit insurance, or hidden prepayment penalties, people targeted by subprime lenders don't fare so well. This is a market where lenders deliberately deceive applicants regarding both the cost of credit and whether applicants would qualify for a more reasonably priced loan. All written testimony describes in more detail the practices we are concerned need to be regulated. Because lots of times, um, the, like the Latinos, they do not translate the contracts in, in Spanish so that they would read it. They just give them the, the regular contract signed on the dotted line. And a lot of times, in desperation, they do. My roof is leaking, so, you know, in desperation. And then, you know, they know the fine talk to, to, to give to them. So we, we recommend that, that loan counseling be, um, you know, be a must for, for these people so that they know what they're getting into. We, we, are, we are going to be relentless in our efforts to wipe this out because it's wiping out our communities. Three years after Gloria Waldron's wondrous excoriation of predatory subprime lending, Roy Cooper and Tom Miller, then Attorneys General for North Carolina and Iowa in that order, ventured to the plush D.C. office of Comptroller John Jerry Hawk. They had a concern. National lenders were pushing abusive, unfair, deceptive, and highly risky mortgages. The OCC is fully prepared to use its authority to combat abusive, unfair, and deceptive lending practices if they're engaged in by national banks. So Cooper and Miller bring their concerns to John Jerry Hawk, and they're like, we gotta do something. And Hawk says, listen guys, actually he didn't say this, I vowed to use brute force in combating abusive lending practices, and I look forward to cold cocking the shit at our reckless mortgage lenders. Okay, that probably didn't happen word for word just like that, but Cooper and Miller did go to Hawk's office, and they did raise concerns. But Hawk didn't really listen to them. Hawk's office of the Comptroller of the Currency actually took the side of the banks. In this specific instance, first Franklin Financial and Lehman Brothers. When North Carolina and Georgia took matters into their own hands, passing legislation to hinder the banks, first Franklin and Lehman, Hawk chucked preemption at them. What the fuck is preemption? When federal and state governments quibble over corporate operations, the Fed always wins. In other words, preemption means that the states don't really get to make the final decision. If the U.S. government doesn't like it, they can just overrule the state. Preemption. 
So John Hawk Jr. instead opted to hamper states from interfering in banks slinging pig shit mortgages. Shortly after the 2003 meeting with Cooper and Miller, Hawk went back to life as a simple country lawyer representing mortgage lenders. In response to the assertion by Kathleen Keast, former attorney general in Iowa who then moved to the nonprofit Center for Responsible Lending, that preemption led to the mortgage crisis, Hawk did indeed say this in 2004, bullshit. Hawk said and did bullshit. In January 2004, Hawk filed a brief in federal court in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on behalf of Wachovia to block further examination of a Wachovia-controlled mortgage subsidiary by the state of Michigan. Hawk's OCC argued that no state could, quote, obstruct, impair, or condition the exercise of national bank powers, and that included subsidiaries. The situation was so serious to Ken Ross, Michigan's then commissioner overseeing the Office of Financial and Insurance Regulation, thank you, LinkedIn, that he took the case to the Supreme Court, where none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote that the court couldn't support, quote, duplicative state examination, effectively enforcing preemption. Gloria Waldron sat through a congressional hearing specifically on predatory lending, listened to Comptroller Hawk vow to use the power of his office to keep lenders in check. The OCC is fully prepared to use its authority to combat abusive, unfair, and deceptive lending practices if they're engaged in by national banks. And she gave real-world insight to the effects that subprime loans have on borrowers, often the only loans available within their communities. It was understood that in spite of CRA oversight, a huge number of subprime loans were being issued by banks not affected by CRA guidelines. And there was the overshadowing concern of financial institutions packaging these loans in a coordinated effort to take ownership of foreclosed properties. And like all things, the inverse is also true. Comptroller Hawk listened to Waldron's testimony, listened to the specific actions ACORN made on behalf of low- and middle-income communities to defend against predatory lending, and listened to the consequences of under-regulation, how people were directly affected by being at an information disadvantage when taking out these loans. Three years later, state attorneys general approached Hawk to inform him that the warnings issued in the congressional hearing were manifesting in real time. From warning Congress about the dangers of subprime lending to folding under internal conflict and manufactured scandal in less than a decade, Acorn's legacy of community service was reduced to a single jab in Caldwell's New York Times opinion piece defending Bloomberg's ignorant comments on redlining. Redlining, sanctioned by the government agency Hulk, was the very same exact thing that both led to the sustained concentration of minorities in low- and moderate-income neighborhoods by restricting access to home loans, and which allowed financial institutions to come in six decades later to exploit generations of systemic poverty perpetuated by restricted access to those home loans. Pinning the blame on CRA obligations, despite their representing only a quarter of defaulted loans is, you guessed it, a giant fuck you to the communities, small banks and thrifts, and the people who, as told by government officials, would benefit from more subprime loans in their communities. That the humans being blamed also happen to be predominantly minorities is more than enough to justify assertions of Bloomberg's racism and the inherent racism within banking overall. This was Chapter 3 of Unfuck the Poor, our longest episode yet. If you're like me, maybe this chapter made you a little depressed. You had a community organization, ACORN, tanked by racist filmmakers, and 
In case you didn't know what Acorn was about, come to find out they tried really hard to protect poor homeowners long before the housing market came tumbling down. So if that's you, if all that makes you sad, please take comfort in the fact that there is a Gloria Waldron in your community, someone who believes that you deserve dignity through whatever their cause happens to be. For Gloria Waldron, it was housing and predatory lending. In your community, it may be food or the environment. The people out there doing the work for people they don't even know do it all without most of us knowing their names. The most important people in history, it may surprise you, aren't written about in books we have probably long forgotten their names. But every once in a while, they have their moment, like Gloria Waldron had hers, and it is preserved for us to see, hear, and experience decades later. If anyone listening knows anything about Gloria Waldron, we'd love to hear from you. The next chapter has a silly name, so I won't say it here. Thank you for listening.